Good morning, everyone. We are continuing our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Matthew 5, 27, speaking to his disciples on that Galilean hillside, Jesus said, you have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you stumble... Tear it out, throw it from you, for it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off, throw it from you, for it's better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than your whole body to go into hell. It was said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Father, we are here to worship you an audience of one. May our worship please and glorify you. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our great God, our rock, and our redeemer. Amen. In 1631, Robert Baker and Martin Lucas, London publishers and booksellers, were tasked with reprinting multiple copies of the King James Bible. They did an expert job. To bind it, they used leather from Italy and paper, fine paper, imported from Sweden. Made an attractive addition. A year went by before the most scandalous misprint in all Bible-making came to light. In reading through Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, a little three-letter word was found to be missing in the seventh commandment. The commandment read, you shall commit adultery. Important little three-letter word to be left out. Obviously, there were consequences. Those two men were fined the equivalent of today's currency, $70,000. They lost their printing licenses. Those copies were taken and destroyed, not all of them. My understanding is there's about 14 left. And if you visit the Museum of the Bible, you will see one of those that has come to be known as the Wicked Bible. 
<laughs> so, the not is still in the seventh commandment. Let's, let's be clear. You shall not commit adultery. But unfortunately, our society has sought to remove that little word, not, to you shall commit adultery. You and I know we live in a highly sensual society. There are loud voices that shout morality, marital fidelity, things of the past, a Puritan ethic. But in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses the sins of our age. Last week we sat on a hillside in Galilee along with disciples when Jesus spoke those shocking words. Unless your righteousness surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he went on to explain what he meant using six examples that show us the need for righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. These cases demonstrate the priority of internal attitude over external actions, of relationships over rules. Last week, we looked at the first, anger. And Jesus was very, very clear that it's the motive for, for, the motive for murder is just as bad as the act itself. Anger and harsh speech can murder another individual. This morning, we're going to look at the second and third, or second and third examples, adultery and lust and divorce, and selfishness. And Jesus' instruction is clear. Unbridled lust is adultery. You notice he said, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, I would remind you from last week that Jesus could not be sure of everything that his disciples had heard because the scribes and the Pharisees, the rabbis, used oral tradition to add to the law, and sometimes those oral traditions were misleading. So he wasn't sure what they had heard. Let's talk about that word for a moment. What does adultery mean? In the simplest answer, it's marital infidelity. Adultery makes, breaks the marriage covenant. primary purpose of the seventh commandment is to protect marriage. Jesus understood the mindset of these scribes and Pharisees and rabbi. For them, it was the act. As long as I've never met someone at a Mediterranean motel, I'm, I'm in the clear. But Jesus would go on to say that the heart of the problem is the issue. When Jesus spoke these words about the commandments, he was using the inside-outside rule. The law governs the inward thoughts as well as the outward actions. It covers the desires as long as the deeds of the body. For the seventh commandment, this means we are forbidden to lust. Adultery is an act of the heart. But Jesus is not referring to a man and a woman, the desire of a man and a woman. That's God-given. Although sometimes it comes with a label, handle with care. Jesus is not talking about normal attraction that exists between men and women, but the deep-seated lust. 
that searches to consume. That word lust is sometimes translated coveting. So the seventh commandment is tied to the tenth commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's anything. This kind of lust is a desire that focuses on a woman to possess her, having an immoral relationship with her. It's not the first glance. It's the second. It's the third. Bible scholar A.B. Bruce put it this way. The look is not casual but persistent. The desire not involuntary or momentary but cherished. We have an example in the Bible, don't we? King David, man after God's own heart. Wow. Please listen as I read the incident in his life that demonstrates this issue of lust and desire gone awry. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. Now when evening came, David arose from his bed and walked around the roof of the king's house and from the wharf he saw a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful in appearance. It was a warm spring evening. David couldn't sleep. He went up on the roof to a little cool breeze and to see his city. Oh, he should have been out leading the troops in battle, but he was at home. And then he saw what is described as a woman bathing. A woman was very beautiful in appearance, and David's look became fantasy, and that became mental adultery. Fantasy preceded the act. That's always how it happens. And you, ne- you know the rest of the sordid story of David and Bathsheba. The point, no sensual sin was ever committed that was not first imagined in the mind. Just a note, and I hesitate to say this, but this is focused on men. But ladies, you're not immune. Remember Miss Potiphar? <laughs> she liked Joseph. How do I live a life of purity in a culture of sensuality? Simple. Being clear at what you look at. What we see or do not see is more important now than ever before. There are sexual images everywhere. Certainly it involves what we read in books and magazines what we watch on TV, what movies we go to, what internet sites you visit. Even music has many songs that romanticize infidelity. Consider the billion-dollar pornography industry that is so easily accessible, so anonymous, so affordable, and unfortunately that disease, that Evil influences many in the church of Jesus Christ. It denigrates women. It damages relationships. 
And as one person correctly noted, pornographic pictures secretly convey poison to the heart. Poison to the heart. And Jesus goes on to give us a remedy, doesn't he? (laughs) Seems a bit drastic in my mind. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. Throw it away. Better lose a body part than to go to hell. Some of the early church took this literally. Origin of Alexander, who lived in the second century, had himself physically emasculated to overcome sexual desire. Not long after that, 325 AD, the Council of Nicaea outlawed that practice. I I don't want to be trite or flip in any way. Please don't misunderstand me. But to read these words, it's almost humorous. Suppose I'm struggling with lust. I poke out my right eye. There's no evidence that a one-eyed person has less desire than a two-eyed person. You can even poke out both eyes and you can have lustful pictures on the cinema of your mind. Further, no places we should go where we could get in trouble. There's no things we shouldn't touch, shouldn't handle. Be careful. Be careful. There are times when we can use our limbs to get away. We go back to Mrs. Potiphar. She tried to entice Joseph. In Genesis, and what did he do? He exited stage left. <laughs> he got out of there fast. No, Jesus is using extreme examples to show that adultery and lust, like all sin, is serious enough for folks to end up in hell, the worst possible destiny. What does Jesus mean when he uses this stuff, these terms? He means we need to deal drastically with sin. We must not pamper it. We must not flirt with it, enjoy it, nibble around the edges of it. We are to hate it, crush it, dig it out. Unbridled lust is adultery. And mental adultery is sin that must be dealt with decisively. Drastic measures are always appropriate to protect our spiritual health. Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, chapter 3, verse 5, said, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. The discussion of adultery and purity leads Jesus naturally to the question of divorce. Jesus builds on this idea of lustful thoughts and turns his attention to divorce. Before I talk about this, I'd like to say something else. In my study, I learned that eight of ten people, 
Eight out of ten people, families, have experienced divorce, either in their immediate family or in their extended family. Mentioning divorce is painful for some because they have been deeply, deeply wounded by broken marriages. For this reason, preachers hesitate. I might have heard something if I jumped from this verse and gone on. But Jesus talked about it right up front in the Sermon on the Mount. So it was important for him. We dare not ignore it. But I want us to understand we're going to deal not with the topic of divorce per se, but how it relates to Matthew chapter 5, the passage we're studying this morning. What is very, very clear in Scripture, and I don't, if, if I've heard Todd say this one time, I've heard him say it a thousand. God's design for marriage is marry for life. God's design is marry for life. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for a reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There it is again. It was said, Jesus is now going to explain the third case of righteousness that surpasses the righteousness of the Pharisees. He's given instruction on anger, or murder and anger, adultery and lust, now divorce and selfishness. He begins by quoting the words from the pen of Moses written centuries early in the ancient book of Deuteronomy. I'd invite you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Deuteronomy chapter 24. We want to look at verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, and if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife, since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord. and she, You shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. I want you to know that women were treated poorly in the ancient world. And Moses gave these instructions, this certificate of divorce as protection for the woman, essentially to guard her rights. This was a concession because of the hard hearts of the Hebrews. I want you to notice three things in this divorce instruction. A man could only divorce or give a certificate of divorce for a serious cause. That word indecency in Deuteronomy 24.1 we're not sure what it means. 
it was used another, on another occasion of human waste. So Moses was referring to something bad, something serious, an exceptional thing. But we don't know what it was. The man must give the woman a written certificate of divorce. It must be witnessed by two other people, the seriousness of the charge. And the man could not take a twice divorce. He, he couldn't divorce her. And then if she got married and divorced and came back, he couldn't remarry her again. That certificate cleared her to marry, but she could not remarry her first husband again. Back to Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you, everyone who divorces his wife except for the reason of unchastity makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. To understand these words, we need to understand what Jesus faced in the first century. So we want to do a fast forward from Deuteronomy chapter 24 to New Testament times. Because in New Testament times, the focus had changed from protecting a woman's right to having any possible grounds for divorcing her. There were two schools of thought, two, two rabbis who had schools of uh, followers. And they looked at this word indecent, and they had a field day with it because they didn't know what it meant, so they gave it some meaning. Rabbi Halal had followers. Rabbi Shammai had his followers. Rabbi Halal followers were very liberal. They taught that you could divorce a woman if she burned your supper. You could divorce her if she walked around with her hair down or if she spoke to a man in the street or she spoke ill of you, her husband, or her in-laws. Also, they interpreted it to mean that if a husband no longer found his wife to be attractive, no longer had warm and fuzzy feelings toward her, they could divorce the woman. Rabbi Shammai and his followers took a more narrow stance, more conservative. It had to be some moral indiscretion, shameful exposure, a woman tempting a man, all things that were not acceptable in the first century. And these various views of indecency and divorce are the backdrop for Matthew chapter 19. And I'd like for you to turn there. We're moving around a little bit this morning, but Matthew 19, verse 3. Matthew 19, verses 3 through 10. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? He answered and said, Have you not read that he who's created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery, 
And the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man and his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. Verse 3 is a trick question. You have two schools of thought. If he answers no, he gets in trouble with one group. If he answers yes, he gets in trouble with the other group. And so Jesus took them back to the very, very beginning. He took them back to the Genesis account. He went back to God's design. And two things stand out in those verses 4 through 6. First is the intimacy of the marriage relationship. The two shall become one flesh. There is no more intimate relationship than the marriage relationship in human relationships. After intimacy, the second is the emphasis on the permanence. Initially, all divorce was inconceivable when God made men and women. No allowance was made for it. It says no man shall separate. Pharisees didn't want to talk about the creation account. They wanted to get back to Moses. So they asked, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus answered the second question, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. Again, as I look at these words, it seems to me there are three contrasts worth noting. The Pharisees were preoccupied with their grounds for divorce, but Jesus was more interested in the institution of marriage. They wanted to know how to get out of the commitment and Jesus emphasized the intimacy and the permanence of marriage. Pharisees called Moses' provision a command. Jesus said, it's a concession. I take it the Pharisees regarded divorce lightly. Jesus always viewed it seriously. Divorce was not God's original design. His standard was one man with one woman for life. Let me talk about verse 9 for just a moment. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality. No need to make that complicated. I take it at face value. At what it says, the Greek word is pornea. We get our word pornography from it. It was used of a variety of sins. When it refers to marriage, it has to do with marriage infidelity in marriage. And Jesus is saying divorce may, may occur if there's infidelity. Why? Because clearly infidelity with another person breaks the one flesh marriage bond between two people. God's ideal. If marital unfaithfulness occurs for either partner, you may have the right, you may have the right to seek a divorce, but you're not obligated to exercise that right. It's the exception clause, a concession, not a command. Forgiveness and reconciliation is always in God's heart. But the point of this is that if infidelity is not involved, if you divorce for some other reason, a man divorces a woman and marries another person. He commits adultery in marrying again. He forces his first wife, if she remarries, to commit adultery. Several people are forced into relationships outside the will of God. 
And these words in verse um, 8 are, are, are similar to our passage in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32. And the disciples understood it's better not to marry. Jesus was teaching at the heart of marriage stands a commitment, a covenant relationship. In the Bible, marriage is for the tough-minded. Marriage is a commitment, a covenant, not to be backed out of when things get rough, but to be sorted out and solved using Scripture. Couples are to hang in there precisely of what they said when they stood before the preacher and made vows to one another to to live together and love each other for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, till death separates them. Gary Thomas has written an excellent book on marriage entitled Sacred Marriage. In that book, he asks a poignant question. A question we should consider here this morning. What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? What if God designed marriage to make us holy more than happy? God's design for marriage, marry for life. Before we wrap this up, let me just make one observation. What we're learning in the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of the Pharisees who saw only the outward action is the heart. What's in your heart? God is concerned most with what's in our heart. And although divorce destroys God's original uh, intention for marriage, it's not the unpardonable sin. There is grace and goodness and love and reconciliation. John wrote, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Martin Luther was musing about temptation on one occasion. And he said, you know what? You can't keep the birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Lust, temptation. Some thoughts as we leave this morning. And I'm gonna I'm gonna go with the guys thing. You ladies can listen in. Focus as guys, we're gonna go with guys. Reject the idea that whispers in your ear, adultery, lust, <laughs> not a problem for me. You're kidding yourself. We must not fall into the smug, self-righteous conceit that says, that's not a problem for me. It could never happen to me. Which one of us is not guilty of looking too long, admiring too long? We've got to admit we have an adulterous heart. And for those of you who are man enough to say, I've got a problem, I urge you, 
consider Regen. I, I, I've not been, but I've heard so many testimonies of lives that have been changed through that discipleship program that focuses on issues that folks struggle with. They'll be registering again in August and begin later in August or early September. I urge you, if you have struggled in this area, check it out. Second, don't look to prompt lust. First, in the problem, the second, the third. Wandering eyes are sensual eyes. Ultimately, adulterous eyes. Job had some excellent thoughts in chapter 31 of that book. Contains great wisdom. I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. Have you made that covenant with your eyes? Number three, take charge of your thoughts. Paul writing to the church at Philippi, chapter 4, verse 8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if something is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. My brain's slowing down. I don't do this much anymore, but I used to memorize a lot. I'd urge you to memorize that verse. <laughs> Get it in the head. And when the birds fly over your head, remember those words. Think about what is good and right and praiseworthy. Be extremely careful of what you allow your eyes to observe. Ask the Spirit of God to assist you to apply a filter to everything that enters your mind. Trust him to provide you with the discipline and discernment you need. Take it one day at a time. In the words of Paul, walk by the Spirit, walk by the Spirit, walk by the power of the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Our great God in heaven, I'm grateful, Father, for Jesus' words. I'm grateful, Father, for the challenge. I pray, Father, as we leave this place, we'll do a little inventory of our lives and accurately assess where we're at in this area. We need to make a course correction by the power of your Spirit cause us to make that course correction. There's things that we need to discontinue looking at, not observe, do whatever it is. Help us to deal with it decisively for our good, for the good of our families, and for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning. I pray that for each of us we'll uh, take a, an inventory, look at our life, Jesus has called us in a sermon as disciples to be salt and light, to impact our world for Jesus. May we do that this week as we win to the world where he has placed us. Father, thank you for your grace and for your goodness. Thank you for your word. 
I pray your blessing on the remainder of our day and our week, and may we walk in a manner worthy of you who has called us to be your disciples and make an impact, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.